0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. This special episode of the PTCE
1: Pharmacy Connect podcast is all about Waldenstrom Macroglobulinemia. Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia is a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and this disease is a B-cell malignancy that is characterized by the accumulation of lymphoplasmacytic cells that produce monoclonal immunoglobulin N. Therefore, symptoms and complications of this disease are going to be related to the accumulation of IgM. Oral oncolytics have become integral to the treatment paradigm of Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, with Burton's tyrosine kinase being central to treatment guidelines. Pharmacists have a critical role in proactively managing these patients to help optimize adherence and mitigate adverse
0: effects. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
2: Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation. Welcome back to PTCE Pharmacy Connects. This is a podcast focused on continuing education. What's really interesting is the Pharmacy Podcast Network was the first podcast in pharmacy history and history of healthcare to deliver continuing education via podcasting. So if you jog, if you like to work out in the morning, if you know that you're going to have a long drive somewhere, PTCE Pharmacy Connect, this is a place for you to go to PharmacyTimes.org. That's PharmacyTimes.org. Today is another interesting episode. And we welcome back Dr. Victoria Nashar to the Pharmacy Podcast and PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Welcome back, Victoria. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me back.
2: What a great conversation last time. We thank you so much for your insights on Waldronstrom. And we're going to dig a little deeper into that today and preparing pharmacists for the new and emerging treatment landscape of Waldronstrom. And I can't wait to ask you. Specific questions and unpack some of the things that you've prefaced before we started recording, and including things that are upcoming that you've researched in treatments. But before we jump into anything new, let's really kind of take a step back. And just in case a listener didn't hear part one, let's go back and, and share uh, before what we had talked about in, in the different therapies to treat Waldenstrom.
1: Yeah, for sure. There, you know, we talked a lot about this malignancy being a non Hodgkin's lymphoma, but being kind of unique in that the disease has a lot of overlap with plasma cell neoplasms and that it secretes an IgM monoclonal protein. And so, because um, this uniqueness in the clinical presentation, we have a lot of therapies that we can use uh, to treat these patients, which is great. Unfortunately, this isn't you know a malignancy that we can cure, but patients can live with this for a very long time. Um, and so selecting different therapies and new therapies that come to the market, um, it becomes an interesting conversation, um, thinking about how to choose optimal therapy for each patient. Uh, we talked a lot about the types of treatment modalities that we have. So we have traditional options like chemoimmunotherapy, such as bendamustine rituximab. And we focus a lot on, in part one, our new oral therapies, primarily those BTK inhibitors ibrutinib, zanubrutinib, and acalabrutinib. And what's really, really exciting for patients with Waldenstrom's is now these oral BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib and zanubrutinib, can actually be used in the first-line treatment of patients. Um, And so it's becoming a clinical conundrum and very interesting uh, choosing among all of the available options. And it really comes down to the pros and cons of each therapy, which we went into a lot of detail on in part one of the series.
2: So I think of medications, especially specialty medications, cancer medications, in managing toxicities associated with those therapies and treatments and ongoing taking of the medications. What types of treatment related to adverse effects are seen with more traditional therapies such, such as rotexamab?
1: Yeah, this is one of the, you know, Subjects that we have a lot of those pros and cons discussions about really looking at the differences and the nuances and the toxicity profiles of all of these agents, specifically talking more about those traditional options, chemoimmunotherapy. You know, we're looking at side effects that are probably a little bit more typical of chemotherapy. So, myelosuppression, infection risk, maybe some GI side effects or nausea and vomiting, depending upon the agent that you're using. Something, though, that is uh, really unique to Waldenstrom's that we see with some of these, uh, with one traditional option, rituximab, which again works very well across B cell non Hodgkin's lymphomas, including Waldenstrom's. Um, this is a phenomenon that is completely unique to Waldenstrom's, we actually see what we call a rituximab flare. Um, And what happens, and we don't know for sure, um, but the exact mechanism of how this occurs, but what happens is because Waldenstrom cells are unique in that they do secrete a monoclonal IgM protein, when we administer rituximab, we can see a dramatic increase or flare of a patient's total IgM. And this is somewhat concerning, especially if we weren't aware of this phenomenon, but it's concerning for a couple of reasons. The first, you know, being really that this flare if we use IGM level as a marker of indicating disease response or disease activity a rise in the IGM you know immediately after treating a patient can look like overt progression of their disease which is not necessarily a good thing and the second you know major reason why this is a concerning phenomenon with a more traditional agent is that In some patients, this rise or spike in their IgM, depending on how high, can actually lead to hyperviscosity, which we know is a medical emergency. Now, when this has been mapped out in patients, what we see is that the higher a patient's baseline IgM level the higher the risk of the flare, the higher the IgM flare will be. And this risk of hyperviscosity is actually most pronounced in patients who start at a baseline IgM of about 4,000. So in those patients, you know, we really then discuss the safety of rituximab And it doesn't mean we can't give the drug, uh, but perhaps we think about delaying it for a cycle of 2 or treatment while we wait for disease debulking. And then the concern about disease progression with rituximab and this IgM flare is is interesting. Um, If all other signs, if clinically the patient is indicating that they are responding, they're feeling better, their other laboratory work is improving, Then we know that this flare or increase in IgM is due to the rituximab and not actually disease progression. Um, But if the patient is clinically worsening, then that may indicate that their disease is progressing through treatment. So it's, you know, mostly typical side effects with these historic options, but that I wanted to really um, talk about this really unique phenomenon that we see with rituximab, specifically in Waldenstrom.
2: You know, I follow along. And there were three medications that you mentioned before, and I can't remember all of them. I know one of them is ibrutinib. And I'm wondering the the types of treatment, the related adverse uh, effects that are seen with the uh, BTK inhibitors that you've talked about before. Can you review those three?
1: Yeah, so the three um, BTK inhibitors we have in this space are ibrutinib, zanubrutinib, and acalibrutinib, and so while you know these agents are really novel, they're oral targeted therapies. They allow patients to get treated within their home. And they and they have revolutionized treatment of B cell malignancies while Waldenstrom, they're not without their own side effects. And so we start to then talk about the differences in the toxicity profiles between these BTK inhibitors and those traditional options we just discussed. So, in general, when we're thinking about the BTK inhibitors as a class, so all three of them, you know, the most common and concerning side effects we see are most mostly cardiac in nature. So there is an increased risk of atrial fibrillation, both new onset or worsening in patients who have a history of atrial fibrillation. We do see an increased risk of bleeding. This can be minor bleeding like bruising or major bleeding events. And this is really due to antiplatelet activity of the BTK inhibitors. And then something, um, that we noticed with BTK inhibitors that we're very aware of now that wasn't actually noted in the initial clinical trials but was noted in later clinical trials and phase four data post-marketing was new onset or worsening hypertension, which can lead to major cardiovascular events like stroke or MI if it is not managed appropriately. We also see an infection risk with the BTK inhibitors. It's not as pronounced as something like traditional chemotherapy, but there is a risk of infection. There is some mitigation of the immune system. And then um, additionally, another class. Effects that can happen more mild in nature is diarrhea
2: so what about digging into the differences of those three medications and the, the side effects is there a way to differentiate the btk inhibitors in terms of their side effects with the cardiac arrhythmias bleeding infection diarrhea hypertension can you kind of go into that deeper
1: yeah that's a really really great question So Zanyabrutinib and Akelabrutinib are the second generation BTK inhibitors. We talked a little bit about this on the first podcast of the series, but they were developed not to be better from an efficacy perspective compared to Ibrutinib. They were developed specifically to improve upon these toxicities that we just mentioned. And so know, a lot of the toxicities that we see are due to off-target effects of ibrutinib. While we call it a BTK inhibitor, it's not completely clean in how it works. And so they were designed to be much more specific to BTK and hopefully have less off-target. And then therefore, hopefully that translates clinically into less uh, adverse effects. And so We do have the ASPEN trial, um, which we talked about previously, which compared zanubrutinib and ibrutinib head-to-head to one another. And this was the first time two BTK inhibitors had ever been compared head to head. And, you know, not surprisingly, we did not see a difference in efficacy, but when we looked at the toxicity profile between these two agents, we did see very excitingly an improvement in the toxicity profile with zanubrutinib. Now, we saw, you know, statistically significant reductions in atrial fibrillation, pneumonia. There was numeric reductions in the incidence of bleeding, both major and minor bleeding reduction in the incidence of hypertension and diarrhea. And we don't have anything head to head with acalabrutinib in Waldenstrom's, but we think of it as typically having a toxicity profile very similar to zanibrutinib And so drawing on, you know, studies of acalabrutinib from other B-cell malignancies, we do see a reduction in the incidence of these very concerning side effects compared to ibrutinib. Like we suspected. Something that is unique to acalabrutinib, though, that kind of helps differentiate it among zanubrutinib and acalabrutinib is that acalabrutinib does cause headaches. These are typically mild or low grade in nature and usually improve over time, but it's just one side effect that is not yet noted uh, with zanubrutinib. So there is, you know, nuances among and with the second generation zanubrutinib and acalabrutinib, we do see um, a decrease in the risk of these concerning side effects than we saw with ibrutinib. However, they're not completely void of the risk. So we still have to educate and um, assess patients.
2: Victoria, you mentioned cardiac adverse effects. The BTK inhibitor class um, is associated with that. So, Could you describe what types of adverse effects are actually seen?
1: Yeah, so the biggest cardiovascular events really are atrial fibrillation, and this can be new onset, or in a patient that already had a history of atrial fibrillation, a worsening of the condition. Um, we do see the hypertension. Again, it was something that was not noted initially, but we are aware of now. With a hypertension, it typically occurs early on in treatment however you know clinically in practice what we're seeing are cases where it's kind of sneaky and it's something that develops gradually over time so you know these cardiovascular events while majority of the clinical data indicates that they you know occur very early on they are things that we do need to remain vigilant of as patients continue on these treatments for years and years and years because you know from speaking from my own experience and my own Um, patient examples, these are things that can pop up later on. This is a primarily, um, you know, older population. And so they typically have comorbidities and the likelihood of developing things like atrial fibrillation and hypertension in an older population um, is already high to begin with. And so when you have this patient on a BTK inhibitor, If they develop it many years into treatment, it's hard to say that the BDK inhibitor didn't contribute. Um, So we just need to kind of remain uh, vigilant in making sure that we're monitoring for these things.
2: It's exciting to think that pharmacists are really at the side of the physician in place for treatment and to make adjustments, to make suggestions for ongoing treatment. In helping to pick the right medications and and assessing the patient based on the risks that may be there and and some of them you've already mentioned, Victoria. But how do you how do you assess the patient's risk prior to starting a BTK inhibitor?
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, with what you said, that it's exciting that we as pharmacists are you know right alongside the physician, helping them make these treatment decisions and. As these, you know, novel agents come out and their toxicity profiles get more complex, I think pharmacists in general are playing a bigger role in helping to decide based on a patient's risk at baseline, what is appropriate? What is safe? Um, and you know, should we use a BTK inhibitor or should we not? And if we're going to, which one should we use? And so typically, we kind of take a look at the whole patient. So we look at, does the patient have a history of any of these concerning side effects? Do they have a history of hypertension? How severe is it? Are they on any antihypertensives currently currently? And is there hypertension controlled or uncontrolled? You know, same thing with atrial fibrillation. Is there a history? Are there ongoing issues, the severity, medications, et cetera? And ideally, you know, we want to try to have these things under control before we start a BTK inhibitor, before, you know, we potentially worsen. However, that's not always realistic. And so I think the most important thing that personally we've done as pharmacists is kind of reset the expectation with providers that it's okay that if a patient has a history of hypertension or atrial fibrillation at baseline, this is not a contraindication to starting or continuing a BTK inhibitor. You know, we want to just make sure that we're monitoring and mitigating worsening of these conditions as much as possible. There are some scoring tools that help providers calculate a patient's risk of developing something like atrial fibrillation taking into consideration age and other variables but just because a patient is high risk doesn't mean we can't use one of these agents or it wouldn't be a reason to necessarily avoid so we would just look at the totality of comorbidities if we think you know if they have a lot of these past these comorbidities or these things in their past medical history maybe we're you know leaning towards a BTK inhibitor that has a lower incidence Um, or, you know, maybe we're looking at it from a larger perspective and saying they've just had, you know, major cardiovascular complications. Maybe right now it's not a safe time to use a BTK inhibitor. So I would say there's no cut and dry assessment and it's really nuanced based on each individual patient, but understanding that just because patients have histories of these cardiac complications doesn't mean we can't proceed with a BTK inhibitor.
2: Okay, Victoria, so you start a patient on treatment and I'm wondering how do you manage the agent themselves if the patient shows a side effect, if something begins happening?
1: Yeah, this is another place where I think pharmacists have played a huge role and continue to play a huge role. And so if a patient develops atrial fibrillation or hypertension while on treatment, we wouldn't do anything special. We would manage and treat it as we typically would. There's nothing unique about the management aside from assuring that there are no drug interactions with our BTK inhibitor. And this is especially important for atrial fibrillation. So for atrial fibrillation, we typically prefer using a rate control, something like a beta blocker over rhythm control because our rhythm control agents like diltiazem or amiodarone do interact with our BTK inhibitors through CYP3A4 and P-glycoprotein. So we try to completely avoid that if all possible. The only time we would hold or discontinue a BTK inhibitor for atrial fibrillation is really if we're not able to control it. So patients needing multiple medications, needing frequent cardioversion, or in and out of atrial fibrillation often. And we don't know for sure, but at this time, it does not seem like the risk of atrial fibrillation is dose related. So usually dose reduction is not something that's typically employed, but this is really like the instance when we start having conversations about stopping uh, therapy or even trying a different BTK inhibitor. Um, So we've had, for example, we have patients on ibrutinib who develop atrial fibrillation and we have a difficult time controlling it, but we know that the BTK inhibitor is, you know, from an efficacy perspective, um, the most appropriate and, and most efficacious agent for that patient to be on at the time. In those situations, we may try to switch them to zanubrutinib or acalabrutinib, knowing that the risk is still there, uh, but knowing the risk is much lower. And there is some clinical data that demonstrates that patients that do switch because of a side effect, that only a small percentage will have reemergence of that side effect. So that's a strategy that can be employed. Um, Something unique that I just want to touch on about atrial fibrillation is it gets a little tricky um, because we know that once a patient develops atrial fibrillation, they're at increased risk of stroke. And depending upon certain scoring of their CHADS-BASc score and atrial fibrillation, they might qualify for therapeutic anticoagulation. And then this really gets a little bit more complex because it's balanced with this increased risk of bleeding that we see with the BTK inhibitors due to their antiplatelet properties. But again, I really wanna reiterate that developing atrial fibrillation and needing anticoagulation does not contraindicate the use of a BTK inhibitor. We just have to be really careful. We have to use good patient education, frequent monitoring, and we can really use any anticoagulant we want, but typically we're just trying to avoid warfarin uh, because of the high risk of bleeding due to inability to control INR antiplatelet agents are okay, but really where we take a step back is when we're starting to combine all these anticoagulants, antiplatelets, and a BTK inhibitor. We just know that the risk of bleeding is much more pronounced. And so usually in these cases, we're having frequent multidisciplinary discussions with cardiology or neurology to see like, what can we pare down? Can we stop an antiplatelet or anticoagulant? And if we can't, you know, that's when we really think about while the BTK inhibitor might be most efficacious, safety-wise, the risk of bleeding is quite high, and so maybe that's when we take a step back. And then it's just very similar with hypertension. If a patient, you know, develops hypertension or has worsening of a hypertension while on a BTK inhibitor, that doesn't mean we have to stop. The only time we would stop would be really an inability to control that hypertension. So, patients on multiple antihypertensives were maxing out doses, you know, and it's still, we're having a difficult time. And we know that if we can control the hypertension with BTK inhibitors, we mitigate long term cardiovascular events like. MI or myocardial infarction or stroke. Um, But like I said, I think the biggest thing with hypertension is that it can be sneaky. And we've had a lot of patient cases in practice where, you know, it doesn't actually start early on. It starts many months into treatment and you might stop thinking about it or have it off your radar. Uh, Maybe the primary care provider is following it and not aware that the BTK inhibitor is contributing. And so it's just, I think, something that we just really need to remain have it on the forefront of our mind and, and monitor for it long-term.
2: The data that's being collected, Victoria, along the way in these treatments is just fascinating. It's going to help to excel other usages of treatment in different stages, as well as how the patient is um, being impacted in their reaction and the side effects of those medications in the stage of treatment that they're in, what are the key highlights of management of these agents? And when a patient starts on one of the agents, like, what do you discuss?
1: Yeah. It's a really important question because there is so much that encompasses these agents. I think, you know, the biggest thing is just good education on the side effects. And we first start with discussing the major side effects that we've just talked about, you know, when we expect them to occur timeline wise, how a patient can manage themselves, but really good education on when should you contact the clinic versus When should you seek immediate medical attention? I think personally, sometimes we list a laundry list of side effects and it's super overwhelming for patients. And so personally, I try to hit on the top three to four toxicities and really just be very thorough in management and follow up. When it comes to monitoring, typically when a patient starts treatment, we monitor them often because most of these side effects are going to occur early on. Um, so providers will see patients every four weeks, and as time goes on and they're tolerating and their disease is responding, that gets spread out every three months, every six months. Um, we do. We are lucky at our institution that we have a dedicated group of oral chemotherapy pharmacists that make sure patients are reached by phone within seven to 10 days of starting treatment. And that's really just to pick up on any questions and any side effects that might happen right away that patients are sometimes fearful to call and report because they don't want a provider to necessarily stop treatment. Um, When it comes to monitoring some of those specific cardiovascular side effects we've talked about, we don't do anything special for atrial fibrillation, just really good patient education. Um, but certainly things like blood pressure, we're going to be getting readings when we see patients in person. Um, so we'll definitely follow trends there. And then as long as patients are aware that increase in blood pressure can happen, once we start to space out their visits as they go to see their other providers and their primary care providers, patients get really good too at picking up on, you know, my blood pressure has been gradually increasing and kind of alerting the oncology clinic.
2: Excellent. Thank you. So I know you. With your time here, your time in treatment, um, actually seeing patients, um, reviewing with colleagues, I know there's probably other things on the horizon, maybe not completely vetted out, but it's out there. Are there any other investigational agents on the horizon that you could preface or share with us?
1: Yeah, so you know this is a rare malignancy, and so you know there's not um, as many uh investigational agents uh, being studied at this time, as there are in other B-cell malignancies. There are, though, a few things that I'm excited to follow through. The first being venetoclax. Venetoclax is an oral BCL-2 antagonist. And uh, there was a recent publication in the Journal of Clinical Oncology just this last month looking at venetoclax for relapse refractory Waldenstrom. You know, it was a small population, only 30-something patients, but except, Excitingly, most of those patients had received a prior BTK inhibitor. And I say it's exciting because it will really tell us we, what a big area of need right now is we have our traditional agents, we have our BTK inhibitors. And then after that, we're thinking, we're scratching our heads saying, well, what what can we do? What can we work? And so venetoclax in this study of patients who had previously seen BTK inhibitors, the response rate was over 80%. The median time to response was about two months. Although what they noted was that response took longer in patients who had seen a prior BTK inhibitor, about five-ish months. And so I do think that indicates that this patient population post-BTK inhibitor is definitely a more biologically complex patient population uh, to treat, but it seems like venetoclax has good activity in this setting. Now, the most common side effect was neutropenia, which we do see with venetoclax and typically responds to short courses of growth factor or dose reductions or dose holds. And so I really think that this is a potentially exciting option for patients. I think we'll wait and see if it gains FDA approval based on this data and how the guidelines really incorporate it. But it would be really great to see an additional option following uh, BTK inhibitor exposure really on the same track um, i think the other exciting uh, agent to watch for is a third generation btk inhibitor peerta brutinib which is farthest in the pipeline and so this is a third generation btk inhibitor and it's really trying to be designed to pick upon a resistance that occurs with the first and second generation btk inhibitor so it has a longer half-life and we're really looking to see is you know does it maintain efficacy in patients who have already received a first or second generation BTK inhibitor, so brutinib was re, um, presented at ASH uh, last year, not this year, in Walden a small population of Waldenström patients who had received a first or second generation BTK inhibitor and demonstrated a sixty percent overall response rate in those patients. So I, you know, this will move into later stage clinical trials, and so I think this is an important uh, drug to watch in this space. And then lastly, just another interesting study that doesn't have results yet, but I'm really curious to see what happens. Um, there is a phase two trial ongoing for newly diagnosed Waldenstrom patients uh, combination venetoclax with ibrutinib. And while this is you know, two oral chemotherapy agents, so we'll have challenges from per- perhaps an adherence and a cost perspective. I think the most interesting thing about this trial is that they're looking at a finite duration of therapy so patients will only be on combination for two years and then they will stop and go on observation. And we talked about in, in podcast one that a con of our oral options is that they represent indefinite lifelong therapy. And so this will really demonstrate if we can give oral agents up front and can we stop them after a certain point um, to give patients a treatment holiday or a treatment break.
2: Dr. Victoria Shar, you are a, a treasure trove of information on this, and I've enjoyed talking with you. I hope you come back because um, it's just interesting and in, in really hearing from you, and I'm sure our listeners also enjoy um, learning more. So I, I thank you so much for for your time today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'd love to come back.
2: Absolutely. Listeners of the PTCE Pharmacy Connect, for all of your continuing education needs, please visit the uh, the PTCE team packed with so much information over at PharmacyTimes.org. Once again, that's PharmacyTimes.org. We thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of PTCE Pharmacy Connect. We appreciate all the time that you take in what you do as pharmacists, Um, If there's anything that we can ever do for you as an organization, please reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And uh, we thank you for listening and continuing uh, to serve our patients nationwide.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect Podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to PharmacyTimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.